Uh, basically, we invented we we invented America invented nuclear fission. Um, America figured out a way to do nuclear fission, uh, and then we used that to commit war crimes. Right. And then uh, we were like, "What if maybe we backtrack on that and find a way to to do this and not commit war crimes?" Um, and so in the 1960s, uh, and it looks like probably you know a nonprofit sponsored by some fraction of the American government uh, was like, "What if we?" planted gardens and in the middle of the garden was just like a little tiny bit of uranium so that when you get out from the like uranium you go out and out and out in rings of different plants yeah that there's some ideal level at which the plant just got irradiated enough to be like immune to pesticides or whatever the Rio Star they, Grapefruit developed at Texas A&M Citrus Center. They know it's not like X-Men, right? It's not like all mutations give you superpowers. It's like... Well, well yeah. So the thing, <laughs> the thing is, in the very middle of the garden, they're all dead. Right. Because they got a whole bunch of radiation. Mm-hmm. And then as you move out from the garden, you get various some good some bad but like you you do that with apples too right and then you end up with the macintosh and everybody's like great the macintosh i love it um it comes in all sorts of fun colors and then we just hang on to that for a while and so it's a similar thing that you like grow beans and you grow like the right kind of beans one in a million times because you pointed uranium at it um and that was just a thing that we did in the 60s I really hope no one ate any of that. That sounds just like a really bad. In the 1970s, somebody wrote a play about it. The effect of gamma rays on man in the moon marigolds. That's hilarious, I think. I think that's hilarious. Ooh, it's about a broken family. Okay, this is my guess of what it is. Uh, I will be acting, so uh, please uh, be gentle. Uh Um, Just to be clear, I have never even heard of what this this is uh, before now. All I know about it is that there is uh, uranium gardening involved and there's a broken family involved. So uh, I'm imagining it going something like uh, lights come on and you see a a young girl in a like a skirt and maybe uh, a bandana tied around her hair so she like has that all out of her face uh, sitting kind of like cross-legged in a garden and going wow I really wish my my beans would be more resistant to pesticides (laughs) (laughs) and then off stage, you hear um, uh, kind of a booming, uh, loud uh, man's voice go like, Shelly, get in here. <laughs> Stop playing in the gardens. We need you to 
be a a nuclear family, but not in that way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, is there subtext to that? Right there, she's um, or the the booming voice is is saying, "Shelly, get in here." What's the subtext to that? Right? What's you know? There's there's characters, and they have all sorts of motivations. Um, right. So, uh, I'm imagining like the family is like doing their best to fit in with like the class like we we all know like the nuclear family trope and how Mm -hmm. it's so and we all know that it's that it was so difficult to fit into that as perfectly as you were expected to that people ended up you know there was a lot of conflict because of this idea of what a family should be and Mm -hmm. uh we can comment on and it, and the play will end up commenting on a different kind of nuclear family that actually just is mm-hmm. broken for completely internal reasons and also there's uranium in the garden right this nuclear family is pesticide resistant yes exactly um you got I mean, it's a play about a radioactive garden in the 1960s. And so there's only um, so many ways that this can go. Um, a single mother, Beatrice, and her two daughters, Ruth and Tilly. Ruth uh, is Ruth, Beatrice's... That, that, Ruth is a good uh, protagonist. Uh... Ruth is actually antagonist number two. What? Tilly is the protagonist. No. Um, Beatrice is, is the main antagonist. Wow. Okay. And then Ruth is like, there go my expectations. If I behave in the way that this, um, abusive person expects, uh, and, you know, continue their abuse, then they will not do the abuse at me in the way that small children in abusive situations will do that. Um, and so then Tilly is like, wow, I'm getting abuse in two ways, and this sucks. Um, and so I'm going to do a science fair experiment on uh, radioactive marigolds and Beatrice. So it's not a booming voice, or like in the way that I imagine you were thinking. Right. Uh, it's like you are, uh, we as a family are not playing the roles of a successful family correctly, and you are a part of this, and I'm mad at you for it. Um, and also we're going to kill your pet rabbit apparently. So I feel awesome right now. I feel like I was actually super spot on. Uh huh. Uh, like you said, there's only so many ways that could go, but like, I right, pretty, yeah. I pretty much nailed it except for like the main antagonist being, uh, not the dad, but the mom. Right. Yeah, no, that was good. You did a good job of thank you, um, thank you. Assuming what might be contained inside of a Pulitzer Prize winning play about radiation gardening. <laughs> but is it about radiation gardening? That's what we really oh. have to ask ourselves. If you think this is, if you thought this play was was about nuclear gardening. You need to stop talking and listen more. We could just look through Pulitzer Prize winning 
productions uh, that won the the Pulitzer Prize for drama. We certainly could. And you could tell me what their synopses are. Right, I could give you a sentence. Okay. You could give me a paragraph and then... All right, lay it on me. Well, this one does not have a plot synopsis, just a summary. Uh, but now I want to watch it based off this summary. Um, so the Hot Wing King won the award in 2021. And the summary is two gay men in Memphis, Tennessee, prepare their culinary entry for the Hot Wang Festival. Okay. That's that's all. So okay, so I give you uh, more details. That's that's all I know. So I don't know okay. if I can. I can't correct you, but I I can certainly listen. That that's okay. Uh, I don't. Uh, I I will not need correction. I will be correct. <laughs> um. Hey, honey, we are struggling for money. Uh, what should we do? Because this, this hot wing business that we have in our little food truck here, or perhaps a small bodega-ish thing, is uh, not not quite paying the bills. Oh, really? I just actually saw a uh, newspaper ad about a hot wing contest where we could pay, we could get, have enough money to pay off our medical debt. Um if we won oh really that's so that's so cool because we we have a really good hot wing hot wing wing hot um recipe that would be great let's uh let's go scout out the competition and then they do that and then they're like oh crap we're gonna lose if we enter this we have to come up with a better hot wing thing Mm. um a sauce perhaps uh, is what they would be making mostly, or is it more of a breading thing? I don't know. Uh, th- these are all factors that they have to decide. Um, should we even bother focusing on the breading when we could just focus on having a really good sauce, or is the breading an important part of the chicken? These are all very important questions. Uh, and then it turns out it wasn't about the hot wings anyway. It was about family. Ah. And uh, even though we got second place, and it's not quite enough to uh, really help at all with our financial situation, uh, Mm -hmm. we learned to be closer and to be more open and vulnerable with each other. Yeah, I think there's an important detail in there. Um, And I understand why maybe you didn't think of this, Mm -hmm. but when they go to scout out the competition, they both independently um kiss another man oh yes out while they're scouting out the competition and it's yeah. like a man who is part of the competition and each of them then are carrying that burden yeah that guilt, and that shame and sure. that guilt with them for all of act two mm-hmm. and so what happens is at the end of act two they come clean to each other um and then they like make the breakthrough to figure out what they need to make their wings great and this pulse, and it actually won the prize because of the twist at the end, which was that the wings were not, in fact, a metaphor for the romance. The romance was a metaphor for the wings. Right, right. Truly, the things that we need in life are connection and food. 
Um, but sometimes truly the things that we need in life are food and connection. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> they should have used that. That could have been a great subtitle. Uh-huh. I mean, they still could, I suppose. It's, it is it is a 2021 play. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, here we go. This is pulling back a little further. We're looking at 1972. This was written, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1973. Wow. Okay. So this is a play, 1972 play by Jason Miller, That Championship Season. Um, it's set at the coach's home in Scranton, Pennsylvania, 20 years after the Scranton, Pennsylvania Catholic High School basketball team uh, won the Pennsylvania State Championship game. Mm. Basketball, you said? Yeah. It's going to be a tough one, but I think we're going to start with a shot. Not a shot. It's a play. A uh-huh. scene uh-huh. split down the middle of the stage, perhaps even a two-thirds, one-third kind of thing. One is clearly a kitchen. One is a dining room. They got a bunch of company over, and uh, Jim and Pam Helpert are in <laughs> <laughs> the kitchen discussing nothing. You know, they're just going watermelon, bubblegum, watermelon, bubblegum, watermelon, uh-huh. bubblegum, until they turn the mics on. Where they say, okay, yeah, um, yes, I agree, Michael is being a dickhead, but can we please just just slow down for one minute because I need to remember my glory days. And then they look into the audience like, do you remember the glory days? And <laughs> that's actually a subtle callback to uh, the Office TV show, um, not the U.S. version, but the U.K. version. And... Ah. Um, then they go entertain their guests for a while. They talk about, quote, the glory days. But the the conversation goes dry at the when people start to remember the harsh realities of Pennsylvania State Championship basketball because it wasn't all it wasn't all pretty, you know. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of. Uh, pushing yourselves to uh, limits that your body's not used to. And um, we hear them discussing how like this ultimately set them on a path that they didn't really like in life. And now they're at this stupid paper company that they hate with the stupid boss that they can't get rid of. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've had some good memories and all that, but what if they had just, cared about basketball a little bit less how could their lives have been different and they go on a journey they do flashbacks and all that and they have memories and all that good stuff and then they come back and they realize oh no see that wouldn't have been great either because i wouldn't have met you you all Hmm. but in particular you back to the audience thank you so much for going on this 24 season long journey with us and then the and then the office theme music starts playing i have pavlovian responses to that theme song (laughs) um there's one i have one criticism of your your retelling of this story Mm -hmm. uh, which is that this occurs at the coach's home and so 
who's coach? Where's coach in this mingle now? Ooh. So it would it would be more like uh Jim and Pam having like uh you know, like all the coach invites the old players, the now the now old players, mm-hmm. uh, and they're uh, you know, in a plus one to mm-hmm. uh to a dinner. And that is how the story starts. Okay. And then so coach is just also doing all this remembering and going through and being like, yeah, you know, this game wasn't all it was cracked up to be, but I wouldn't have met all you guys if it weren't for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Um, that <laughs> was, I mean, besides the names, <laughs> um, so four of the guys who played on the basketball team come back to the coach's home in Scranton, Pennsylvania um, to reminisce. Uh, they all have gone different directions. None of them have gone in directions that they wanted. Um, <laughs> and they're looking back and they're thinking, like, maybe it all went wrong when we won. You're f***ing with me right now. No. <laughs> Uh, maybe it all went wrong when we won this game because we started to idolize the coach and the coach was a flawed man, just like the rest of us. And actually maybe even more flawed than the rest of us combined. Um, but now we are all in this place, um, and we're still kind of dependent on the coach. And so can we try to find a way through this? I don't know. I'm assuming with each other, right? Mm -hmm. We, we look to each other now for support because we realize we cannot trust the coach. This is something I'm guessing. So that's actually how the game, uh, it's a little indie game. I maybe not even have heard of it, but uh, uh, it was really, it was reasonably popular a couple months ago. It's called Among Us. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they made the Among Us game. The coach was the imposter, could not be trusted. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to cut that out. Um, but the thing is, through the whole play, nobody knows who's the coach. <laughs> it's a Freaky Friday situation where they're just like, they're all switching bodies. No, no. Uh, the live-action Scooby-Doo where they're all like switching bodies and stuff. That is yeah, actually they, like, what's happening. Yeah, they burp up their souls. Yeah. They all burped up their souls and now they don't know who the coach is. And they don't know who to trust. And there's also a beach that makes you old. What's the deal with that? What's the deal with the beach that makes you old? I was off the internet for like eight minutes and I came back and everyone was talking about how all beaches make you old. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> the, there's a movie and it's entitled Old. And it's a horror, it's supposed to be a horror movie about people who are on beach and it makes you old. M. Night Shyamalan. There's like some body horror involved, I imagine. And uh, then everyone said, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) All beaches make you old. I need to see the trailer now. It looked pretty silly from what I've seen. Sirtis, edit this out. I'm going to just listen to this trailer now. Sirtis, depending on copyright law, leave as much as you can in. Okay. I don't know if I'm capturing the the audio from it. So just make this as entertaining as possible without (laughs) violating any federal laws. (laughs) The championship game, there is one plot element that I think is very important um, that I forgot to bring up. 
which is that though Romano, one of the players, is helping George, another, you know, former player, Mm -hmm. um, financially, he is carrying on an affair with George's wife, which I think, like, you weren't allowed to put a play on a stage um, in the late 1900s without an affair, like, (laughs) happening or at least being alluded to. It's also a reference to the office tv show where that happens ah i assume yeah so uh what do you think of old i don't know i'm only 37 seconds in i had to tell you about the affair oh my 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 mistake oh that's why i was talking to somebody recently who was telling me that they had a nightmare not even a nightmare they had a um, they had a dream that they were at this like stupendous beach. It was this wonderful secret beach. And then a dead body floated up to them. And they were like, mm. this was, I wouldn't have expected this dream to happen, but they must've just watched this trailer at some point. Cause that's the plot of this trailer. Your clothes get size up with you. Zach, what about the beach makes you old? Doesn't, <laughs> isn't computing here. <laughs> I, Oh, and then you can't leave the beach. Okay, I see. I was like, why don't they just leave the beach? Here's the answer. They can't leave the beach. So what... If this is an M. Night Shyamalan thing, there must be like a thing that happens that they're like, oh, actually the beach... I don't know. It was each other making us old the whole time. Right. I think you're going to have to watch the movie to find that out, Zach. Or I can just Google it probably. Okay. That is definitely meme-worthy. It's. I appreciate that everyone said, hey, wait a minute, all beaches make you old. Because that's true. That's correct. <laughs> you got that one right. Uh-huh. They certainly make you look old. Wear sunscreen. This one's got a... This one's got a... A lot. This one's got character analysis on Wikipedia. It's Edward Albee. What the f***? Okay, I gotta read the full summary to be able to to accurately assess okay i'm gonna give you a a bit and there will be a hint available if you need a hint uh so seascape is a two-act play by uh edward albee completed in 1974 uh, it won the 1975 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. There are four characters, and the play opens on a beach uh, with just two of the characters. And there's one other comment here. Um, along with other nods to absurdism, it... Absurdism can also be found in a few staging elements. For example, several times through the play, a jet flies above, and each time, the two characters on the beach repeat the same dialogue for two or three lines. Okay. Let's see. Okay, I gotta, I gotta remember what I know about absurdism. I'm thinking, like, waiting for Godot, waiting for Gal Gadot. <laughs> Um, That's actually the only reason they didn't make the Wonder Woman movie earlier. <laughs> Just copyright. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so 
so it's entitled seascape so i'm imagining someone like painting so I'm imagining one of the ma- i'm thinking the main character is painting and the other character is kind of like come inside like i have dinner ready or something like let's let's like have a nice night and main character goes like no no, no wait i need to like I, this needs to happen now the light is perfect right now and i need to do this now and I, we can't do it later and the other character is like okay i will wait and then nothing happens for a while like neither of them even talk mm-hmm. and then <laughs> and then main character goes wait sorry i was not quite following main character is the one who's painting yes, yes. okay main character maybe in that silence like you, you, the jet passes overhead and they say something entirely unrelated to the jet um something along the lines of like the sun's going down i agree the sun is going down the sun's going down and like that is i'm imagining like that kind of three line we're just gonna say something agree with the thing say the thing again okay like the type of like dialogue we're talking about in those moments um then like Something happens kind of not off stage, but like barely on stage. Uh, something that would get attention, bring the audience's attention over to the other side, maybe a lighting change. Mm-hmm. And then the main character kind of starts acting as if they're no longer painting, but instead rearranging parts of the set. Like bringing the the audience, uh, kind of like uh, breaking the fourth wall in a way, at, in, as in literally like taking the the fake water and like tearing off parts of it, saying like mm, that's not okay. quite right. That's not quite right. And it's as if they're still painting. Yeah. But now they are painting their surroundings. Exactly. How is that reflected in the interactions between the two characters? Well, the one who, uh, the, what I called the other character, and I will probably continue calling the other character because I am unaware of more than two characters. There are four characters. Or four characters? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a whole other thing now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, hmm. I had not planned for four characters. That's fair. That's okay. How am I doing so far? Um, you have uh, themes correct, and there's one or two beats that you've got right. Okay, interesting. I'm imagining kind of the transition into... So you said two acts, right? So the way mm-hmm. I'm kind of imagining the acts with like a... If you're going to like plot the the amount of things happening in the plot, I'm kind of imagining like start off small, hurt the audience's brain for a little while, and then go back down before intermission. And I think you do that by, like, continuing the absurdities and things that you don't normally see in a play. For example, like, changing set pieces Mm -hmm. in a way that, um, you know, even ways that are destructive of them. But you have to ask, like, what is the purpose of 
doing that? What is the purpose of bringing the audience's attention towards the fact that they are watching a play? Right. You are, you, audience member, are consuming art. I am making art right here in front of you, but I'm not making a play. I'm making an art, a uh, painting. Mm -hmm. And this painting uh, is different from a play in these ways where I can change something in the landscape without you even noticing, without you even caring. Um, okay. So is this, is this kind of, does this happen as a, um, I think the term is soliloquy. Is this, do they turn to the audience and say this, or is this a conversation that they're having? No, this is a conversation they're having with the other one there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's more metaphorical than anything. They, uh, they're not going to say any of, this 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 is all for um you know the uh the fine people of the pulitzer uh committee to decide uh mm -hmm. and to analyze mm -hmm. um what they're saying is what they're saying to each other is about their lives their dinner their their other two friends maybe who are getting brought in in the second act only, I think. Okay. <laughs> and I'm thinking that they move away from the beach in the second act, uh, going to a... What if they went to an art show? That'd be interesting. They go uh -huh. to an art show, maybe with um, the two same characters, the one that is showing uh, their seascape, and one that is, and one that is like some sort of, uh, you know, someone they live with, someone that they're friends with, someone who like they'd have dinner with on a, just a random night where they happen to be painting. But mm -hmm. also the two other characters, one could be like a, uh, I don't know, do they call them directors in of art shows? Curators, maybe? Okay, yeah, yeah. I think curator would be the word. Mm -hmm. And a... Uh, Someone kind of like hanging up the art or something. Someone who you you notice because there's only four people on the stage, but uh, could very easily fade to the back if there were more people on stage. If it was like a full ensemble type thing, they would just be another. They would character. just be another ensemble. Okay. Mm -hmm. But and they're back there uh, making metaphorical harmonies to the conversation. With they're, the art that they're arranging, or with the things with, that they're saying, I think with dialogue, I think okay. they're doing. They're not actually doing very much ha art hanging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're uh, being an active part of the conversation, having like direct eye contact with the main characters in a way that you're not used to seeing with these types of ensemble characters. They're not okay, like, right. you know, they're not doing the watermelon bubblegum, watermelon bubblegum thing with someone else. They're just like, if you watch them the whole time, they are as much part of the show as anything else, except they're not doing anything. <laughs> just like kind of standing on a ladder holding a Right. And so up. like physically they are disconnected from the rest of the action. But yeah. it could just be that all four of them are standing in a semicircle having whatever conversation they're having. Exactly. Is that? Okay. Now, now, the art director, this guy is a stand-in for the audience. 
we are going to simultaneously have a stand-in for the audience and also be kind of making you extremely aware that you are an audience member. Mm-hmm. And then what what actually happens, though? What actually happens? Well, so, like, what are some themes maybe that we touch on? See, that's where you're wrong, Zach. Uh-huh. <laughs> Please do tell. Uh-huh. Um, if you need themes to enjoy the art, like the like the our show director or our curator are like tell me more about this piece so i can maybe write a description about it i want to know like what inspired you what uh what are what what are some of these kind of weird and different elements representing and our main character is like no this is not these elements are not representing something they are just they're not and they're not even there just to make it look good they are uh they are neither of those things they're neither aesthetic nor metaphorical okay they don't need to be one or the other the the problem with uh art these days is that this this all needs to make sense or have a purpose so it's very are you meant to understand the the painter as kind of a stand-in for the playwright that is one certainly one way to look at it one interpretation but, but okay. if you but if you uh pull back and even apply that logic to what you just said maybe it doesn't need to be right right maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't not need to not be that uh-huh. who knows <laughs> uh yeah i think i'm gonna end it there uh how'd i do I do I want to I want to remind you this is there's a lot of components to this so I get like that you you know it's hard to keep those all in your head uh-huh. um the jet flies above multiple times Yeah um That might have happened in some other part I I think um that jet I don't know I I, I don't have okay. something for the jet I'm sorry That's fair Uh I could also, oh, something interesting uh, for this play that I made up that is, uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's a very fun part of this is understanding, like, if you were to make a play, how would you do it? And hearing, like, when you started describing the other um, play, the the championship game, mm-hmm. um, and you said, like, okay, stage directions, here's, there's kitchen here, there's dining room here, it's a split yeah. set. And so, like, hearing the ways that you're thinking about that for these these plays and, like, what does that, how does that work? I love the idea of the the character going in and, like, moving a rock that's part of the landscape. I, I actually do, feet, too. That kind and of thing. I can imagine that happening a lot in Act 1 where, like, you are the painter rearranging your your art mm-hmm. and, like, make, make changing it and, like, taking what is mostly just kind of a boring set made with paper mache rocks and stuff like that like you can take that and uh you as the artist can like make a decision about how this would be better Mm -hmm. you can take a real seascape a real a thing you know it's not a photograph it's a painting you can just take something and stick it somewhere else if you have the skill 
Um, not that you can't do that with a photo. It's just, you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can see that like not happening at all in Act 2 and until just like the climax where uh, the maybe our maintenance friend or our uh, pa- uh, painting hanging friend mm-hmm. uh, can be like, oh no, that's that's wrong. This goes over there. And then takes a like, okay, I think art gallery, right? It's like white walls, kind of like maybe a column in the middle with like a uh, outer ring. Can mm-hmm. you like imagine that? And like you have a perspective on some of these paintings where like the they're kind of going towards a point because that's just how kind of how perspective works right but you have a backdrop because you don't actually have a set and um so your paintings are going your uh quote-unquote paintings are not going to be actual paintings that you put at an angle they're going to be 2d representations of 3d things interesting okay okay okay. and you so you take so our maintenance friend takes one of these 2d representations of paintings and puts it on the other side with the same perspective um that it used to have on the other side interesting okay again take uh just briefly giving our audience like a you are watching a play you are watching art happen right and if if the playwright had wanted to be very heavy-handed with that that would have been when kind of if you had been rooting for one particular character if you'd been rooting for the artist before Mm -hmm. now the curator says something and you're like oh wait a minute truly the meaning of art is to resonate with me and it can't resonate with me if there's no intention to it or yeah. whatever, right? And you're like, okay, truly. And then the perspective shifts. Yeah. Right? And that, that would be a very heavy-handed way to do it, but I think there's a... Um, there's probably a subtle way to do, get that done. Yeah. If you're a Pulitzer-winning playwright, perhaps. Right. All right. Let's... Uh... Okay. <laughs> Can I try a thing? Yeah, Which is, I'm going to tell you a synopsis of the play Seascape, and... You're going to tell me about a play titled Seascape that has that synopsis. Okay. I... Which is to say, okay. I'll give you okay. like four sentences now. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 Um, so Seascape is a two-act play by American playwright Edward Albee, completed in 1974. There are four characters, Nancy and Charlie, who are married and Leslie and Sarah. The entirety of the play occurs on a beach. The nod to absurdism is not only found in having half the cast be human-lizard hybrids, but also in a few (laughs) staging elements. For example, several times through the play, a jet flies above, and each time, Nancy and Charlie repeat the same dialogue for two or three lines. (laughs) Uh, They're lizard people. Okay. Seascape opens on a beach. I feel like you can't have your characters be human lizard hybrids and like talk about that too much if you're going to be absurd about it. It's just got to be the way the things are. Um, I think that's about frame of reference, right? Because you as an audience member are going to be looking at that and the whole time you're going to be like, it's absolutely absurd that um, 
that these characters are human lizard hybrids, right? You're always going to be aware of that in some mm-hmm. manner from your frame of reference as an audience member. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think maybe there are multiple frames of reference in this, in this play um, beyond just the audiences. I got to say, Zach, I was, <laughs> so I'm still pretty confident about this. I'm pretty confident that this play is about art because you can't, make a pl- you can't make art with like an artist in it or like a a painting in it as a main plot point okay. without to some degree the play being about art itself uh-huh so there's a painting in the play it's a seascape i mean that's the name of the play i would like there to be a seascape <laughs> involved unless the play is the seascape uh i hate it i hate this game okay very valid Uh, it's too hard yeah this this (laughs) one was whack you got the other ones really close um and uh if any, if J- Jared, if you're wanting to describe this episode to anyone, you can say Liz absolutely nailed this game where she had to like guess what a play is about based on the title and the number of characters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, we don't need to leave this one in. So Zach, what is this play actually mm-hmm. about? So I think actually probably uh, an error that I made is that I didn't really give you any sense of theme. Okay. Where like with the the radium in marigolds, you get like a sense of theme from okay. that, and the championship game too. There's like a sense of theme that you can. Um, so this one, there are themes of absurdism, obviously, as well as evolution and human relationships. Which, like, good job. That's a play. Uh, I'm going to start telling you elements of this story. Uh, let me know when you know what the next element is, right? Okay, okay. Seascape opens on a beach. An older couple, Nancy and Charlie, have finished a picnic lunch. As Nancy cleans up, the noise of a jet flying low engulfs the stage. Charlie predicts that a jet will someday smash into its sand dune. They argue for a while. Nancy wants to be near the water forever. Charlie responds negatively to that. Um, she threatens to go have adventures on her own. Uh... She retreats from her plan after Charlie's outburst and is content to enjoy the moment. Um, After another jet passes, Nancy reminds Charlie about his childhood desire to live under the water. Um, Charlie tells her that he used to hold his breath and sink to the bottom of a pool or a lake and sit there until he had to breathe. Uh, Nancy encourages him to do this again and get in touch with his youth. Charlie refuses and, and is embarrassed. They talk about their sex life. She once again encourages him to sink under the water again and show her how he did it. Charlie again refuses and turns the conversation to her. Um, He says she was a good good wife. She says he was a good husband. When she is done, she becomes bitter because the good life that they have had seems limited to her. Charlie is hurt. They argue. During uh, an extended pause in an argument... Something appears to distract the audience from from this argument they're having. It is Leslie, a human-sized male lizard, 
who pops up from behind a rock. Zach, you asked me to stop you when I think I know what the next thing that's going to happen is. Uh Uh-huh. I just would like to say that I have no idea what the next thing that's going to happen is. (laughs) Absolutely no clue. Nancy tries to get Charlie to help write postcards. He declines. Postcards? Postcards? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Leslie and his female mate, Sarah, once again pop out from behind the same rock. Nancy sees the lizards and is intrigued. Charlie is afraid. What's this? So based on their dynamic now, what do they do with each other? They are now aware of the lizards. What do they do? Okay, so like... Charlie's going to be like... Sorry, Charlie and Nancy are the first two. Mm -hmm. So I think Charlie's going to like grab Nancy and be like, no, don't go over there. There are human-sized lizards over there. Mm -hmm. And Nancy's going to tell him to... Uh, go drown himself, I think. Um, and the other lizards are going to be very interested in writing postcards. Yeah, okay. Um, so Charlie is definitely wary of the lizards, but instead of doing anything about it, Charlie demands that Nancy find him something to defend them with. <laughs> When she can only find a small, thin stick, Charlie is peeved. That's hilarious. This (laughs) deserves the prize. Um, When Leslie, the male lizard, clears his throat, Nancy becomes fearful that the lizards may hurt them. When Leslie waves his large stick, Nancy and Charlie admit their love for each other. That's just a sentence there. I I don't have any more context than you have. I'm really sorry. Nancy is more reluctant about this than Charlie. Uh, Leslie and Sarah begin to move forward, but another jet flies by and scares them away. Charlie blames the whole episode on a bad liver paste sandwich. He believes they are dead from food poisoning and dreaming this up posthumously. See, that I would believe. Uh That is the most clear explanation anyone's given so far. Nancy ridicules the idea. Also reasonable. (laughs) Uh, Nancy is pleased when Leslie and Sarah return. In order to protect themselves, Nancy believes that they should show submission by lying on their backs with their legs and arms up, such as a dog would. Charlie assumes the position with great reluctance. End of act one. Okay, so I think I nailed it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, act two, they're in an art gallery. <laughs> uh, no, act two opens exactly where act one ended. Uh, Leslie and Sarah are unsure about the stance that Nancy and Charlie have taken. Here we go. They go. They talk for a while. Uh, Charlie does not talk to the lizards. Nancy finally sits up and greets Sarah. Though Leslie and Sarah speak English, they do not understand many of the words and ideas that Charlie and Nancy use. Hmm. Nancy tries to shake Leslie's flipper, but Leslie cannot grasp the concept. You know, lizards who have flippers. Mm -hmm. I was going to say something. I wasn't sure if it was important or not. Nancy and Charlie explain the concept of the handshake as well as their differing anatomy. The lizards have only legs and flippers. Now, what do you mean? Like, is there a torso involved? 
I th- yeah, I think I think there's a torso involved. I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. It is okay that you don't know. Among other things, Nancy tells the lizards that their clothing covers their sexual organs. This leads to a discussion of the human sex organs, especially Nancy's breasts. The lizards do not have these organs. Nancy shows Sarah, who is fascinated. Leslie is also interested, but Charlie is uncomfortable with the idea. Who cares what Charlie thinks (laughs) about? Leslie is appalled when he learns that the humans do not lay eggs. That's also reasonable. Nancy tells them that they kept their children for many years, and she explains the concept of love. This and all emotions are foreign concepts to the lizards. Didn't they express love for each other before, though? Or was that the humans? That was that was Nancy and Charlie when uh, Leslie okay. shook his big stick. Okay. Wait, why did Leslie wave a big stick? No clue. Okay. Charlie is nearly attacked by Leslie when Charlie angrily compares the male lizard to a fish. The women calm the men down and Leslie explains his disdainful attitude toward fish. They discuss the ideas of prejudice. Nancy and Charlie cannot explain photography to Sarah, so Sarah believes that they are insulting her. Abruptly changing the subject, Nancy declares that Charlie, Charlie believes they are dead. Uh, they get scared of the jet. This is, so this is the important thing about the jet, is that the jet flies by... And, and the lizards scared. become scared of the jet. And uh, then Charlie says again that he thinks that they're going a jet is going to fly into a sand dune. I don't know. They don't, they don't say what the line is that gets repeated. They just say that a line gets repeated or a few lines get repeated. Okay. Uh, Nancy once again urges Charlie to sink underwater and stay there. Angry at Nancy, Charlie changes the subject and asks the lizards why they came out of the sea in the first place. They do not know, other than that they have changed somehow and do not belong there. Charlie explains evolution. Okay, so when you say that the themes are of evolution, uh, you mean in like the Nintendo Pokemon sense, not in the actual biological I, process. I think in the sense of the biological process of like what makes humans so special, maybe of like if there were human sized lizards with no emotions, with no emotions and also <laughs> flippers for some reason. Nancy tells them to st- Okay, so Leslie and Sarah decide to go back. Nancy tells them to stay because eventually they will have to come back. Nancy, and to some degree, Charlie, offer their help. Leslie accepts the offer. The relatively happy ending is not common in many of Albie's previous plays, and some critics found it refreshing. There's got to be a lot more than what we're getting in this Wikipedia description. Yeah. Oh, here's the Wikipedia section on the theme of evolution. The relationship of Nancy and Charlie is in the process of evolving. They are on the verge of a major life change, retirement. Charlie would like to use his retirement to rest. Nancy sees this desire as regression. Evolution has a different meaning in terms of the lizards. Leslie and Sarah are literally evolving. Like a Pokemon. Yeah, you know. Uh, maybe this is like the the other one. Like there was Darwin and then there was the other guy who was like, evolution is that 
when your parents are muscly, you inherit their muscliness. Yeah. And everyone was like, actually, I think not. There is critical debate over exactly what genre of play Seascape is. That's also very funny to me. Yeah. Uh, Edward Albee also wrote The Goat, or Who is Sylvia, which is the reason that I know about him. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. All right. That was a a fun and interesting excursion (laughs) into Wikipedia. And to some degree, my own mind. So you're welcome for that. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I should just start generating like ideas of plays that I don't find online and just see like what the what the plot points are that you think this play needs <laughs> to be worthy of um the the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. You could have a fun game like uh I will describe a play to you and you're going to tell me uh what awards it won. <laughs> I I would be interested in watching the the seascape about an artist um but i think i would want i i would hope that there would be some more depth to the relationship between the characters that's reasonable uh-huh i was mostly going off of i i have read waiting for godot in an english uh 100 level class gotcha and uh, that is my only experience with absurd plays. No, yeah. I think the absurdism here mostly came from the human-lizard hybrids. Yeah, that seems uh, accurate. <laughs> um, whereas Waiting for Godot, they just, it's just two people who are weird. Ah, okay. <laughs> like, not actually. There's a lot going on there, I'm sure. I wasn't really paying attention, um, but uh, yeah, they're not like like weird things happen, but they're not as weird as human lizard hybrids. Mostly, just there's uh, the weird things that happen are like interpersonal or uh, weird reactions to semi-normal things. Certus Google mm, okay. waiting for Godot and cut all that out if i was wrong (laughs) hey zach hey liz and now a psa from the worrying bugs what do you all think about double middle names do you have two middle names do you like them hate them Feel indifferent? Do you all feel like it's an unnecessary burden for a child or a reasonable way to work in all the names you want to use? This has been a PSA from the Worrying Bugs. Jared, if you are a human lizard hybrid with fins who used to live in the water but now does not and is scared of jets and also waves a big stick semi randomly. Or if you irradiated a marigold, uh, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at...